ever since national conservative movement hinted at its existence, it's been greeted with suspicion not only by the left, but even by some conservatives who might have been expected to welcome it as another strand in conservative politics. Their criticisms have been various, for instance, its nationalism must inevitably mean anti-market policies, but it was commonly agreed anyway that it was something new and untried, maybe therefore not conservative at all, and these attacks settled down into a kind of mainstream media orthodoxy that national conservatism was a species of populism bent on attacking liberal democracy and thus highly suspicious. I think we've survived such interpretations, and indeed we've prospered. But they're revealing and worth examining, and so to help do so, I recently read Francis Fukuyama's new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents, where he discusses the relationship between liberal and democracy in Western politics and political thought. He defines democracy in a way we'd all endorse, meaning periodic, free and fair, multi-party elections under universal adult suffrage. So far, so good. He then goes on to liberalism. And there he writes, liberalism, in the sense I am using it, refers to the rule of law, a system of formal rules that restricts the power of the executive, even if that executive is democratically legitimated through an election. Thus, he says, we should properly refer to liberal democracy when we talk about the kind of regime that's prevailed in North America, Europe, parts of Asia and East Asia um, and since the Second World War. Now, this argument is both normative, it's about how we should refer to our post-war system of government, and positive. It was the system of government we've had since 45. And the first reply to that has to be that liberal democracy was not in fact the system of government we thought we had and said we had. If you look at the many statements of polit political leaders, governments, and international institutions, particularly after the founding of NATO in 1949, they almost used the naked, unadorned term democracy to describe the system of government which Western governments were united in defending. In 1970. Nine, eight in Brussels, Margaret Thatcher, for instance, Margaret Thatcher delivered a speech on policy in which she said the following. The transition from dictatorship to democracy in Spain and Portugal is one of the few really encouraging things which have recently happened. And there are countless such official statements using democracy without adjectives to describe our system of government. Now, that's not to say I would have been dis surprised or disturbed to hear the term liberal democracy used as a, more or less a synonym for democracy in those days. Almost certainly, I would have been listening to um, reading a book by a political theorist or listening to a lecture rather than, uh, rather than hearing uh, an active politician, for, for obvious reasons. Liberal was also the name of a political party and a broad political disposition, which in all countries meant different controversial things. Economically right-wing in Europe, soft on crime in the United States. Uh, the term liberal democracy would have introduced confusion into the powerful idea of a government for, of, and by the people, and that's why it wasn't used in Cold War terms. But there was then a context also in which liberal democracy, though uncommon, would have been readily understood, but which was also conveyed simply by the word democracy on its own. And that context was as follows. 
For democracy to be genuine, it has to be accompanied by free speech, a free press, open debate, no major barriers to entry into the electoral process, and uh, similar rules di directly devoted to ensuring that elections were fair and meaningful. These procedural rules weren't always spelled out. They didn't have to be. It was clear you couldn't have elections without them. And that's the major reason why in those days we sometimes, uh, uh, and that's the major reason why democracy wasn't called liberal democracy. It took, it, it was taken for granted. These limited liberal regulations were inherent in the democratic process. They were a guarantee of democracy, not a corrective to democracy if it produced results we didn't like. Now that's not what is meant by liberal democracy in Dr. Fukuyama's formulation. Uh, as you heard, he, uh, it was a form of rules that restricted the power of the executive, even if it was democratically legitimated through elections. That describes the much more extensive, intrusive, and powerful system of rules that scarcely existed in 1945 and was still in its adolescence in 1989 when the Cold War ended. Western countries began to develop new institutions in those days, when it seemed we didn't need to worry uh, about the Russia or ideological threats from anywhere until 9-11. And that threat pointed us in only one direction and not the most important one. What that's meant is the gradual development within Western countries of the transfer of powers from democratically elected and accountable parliaments to non-accountable courts and bureaucratic agencies. And internationally, it's meant the same transfer uh, from um, national governments to bureaucratic, to, sorry, to supranational bodies, international courts, and agencies which enforce treaty obligations that have usually been expanded far beyond their original interpretation. This is a massive change in the system of government we have. And it covers everything from trade and warfighting powers to cultural and legal traditions. Our laws and regulations are now made in a wilderness of overlapping sovereignties, exercised often in private and not subject to the rules we would impose domestically. And yet at the same time, as Professor Thomas Gallagher has recently demonstrated in the Hungarian Conservative, one supranational institution, the EU, has taken the process a stage further. Since the year 2000, I quote him, since the year 2000, if not earlier, the EU has acquired the legal power to insist that member states comply in their internal affairs with a particular set of political values. It acts as a pedagogue promoting a new liberal order centered around the values of egalitarianism and diversity, imposing and regulating behavioral standards within its own ranks of nations has thus become a major preoccupation. I think David would agree it doesn't altogether differ in this country, in, but it occurs in different institutional frameworks. In effect, the expansion of liberalism in this way is now redefining democracy to render some political attitudes, generally conservative or patriotic ones, unrespectable in political debate. I suggest to you that there were two moments in this expansion of liberal institutional authority which should have prompted concern and opposition 
from both Democrats and nationalists. The first was when courts expanded their legal authority from declaring a, war a law unconstitutional and leaving it to Congress or Parliament to amend it. They moved from that to imposing their own solution in place of the law. That is now commonplace in the US, Europe, and the Anglosphere. It's not universally so, by the way. There's no constitutional court superior to the New Zealand Parliament and several other countries, but it's in most places. The second moment was when a supranational authority of any kind imposed a final decision about the laws and regulations of a democratic parliament. Expressions of concern there frequently were, but there was no effective opposition until Brexit to this gradual expansion of non-democratic and anti-political political authority. In fact, anti-national political authority. In fact, the mainstream parties of the center-right were themselves complicit in what John Fonte was the first scholar to identify as post-democratic and post-national politics. And that only began seriously to change when insurgent political, one minute. Um, okay, uh, when insurgent political parties emerged and began to win elections, uh, precisely because mainstream parties has ignored their constituencies, appeased the cosmopolitan authorities, and gr gradually imbibed post-nationalism, and then imposed unpopular policies, which the uh, electorates, uh, uh, which electorates couldn't change, and consequently rebelled. National conservatism, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing new. It is the return of the repressed. Nationalism and patriotism were the common coin of conservative politics after 1989, when they began to seem, uh, until after 1989, when they began to seem to progressives across the spectrum as atavistic obstacles to a new post-national, post-democratic age. Consider the rhetoric of Reagan, of FDR in his, um, prayer for American soldiers on D-Day, on Churchill in his great wartime speeches, on Margaret, of Margaret Thatcher. It was patriotic, bold, unashamed, and persuasive to millions. When Margaret Thatcher heard the argument that nationalism had led to World War II, she replied that Nazism and communism were two ideologies, one of race transcending nation, the other of class transcending nation, and that it was national loyalties that had inspired the resistance in all of the countries occupied to those oppressive ideologies. And it still continued to inspire the great majority of citizens in democratic societies, as the date should remind us, and secondly, uh, as the death the reaction to the death of the queen also illustrates. Now, I did have a passage I will now have to leave out because other people spoke longer before me. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's a response to a perfectly reasonable argument of, of Fukuyama. So you can read that in the book. Um, now, he does say national identity is malleable and it can be shaped to reflect liberal aspirations and to, well, I'm sorry, I'll have to cut even more. My final point, we all have to handle the dilemma that Fukuyama points to, which is that he wants to have support for nationalism on the one hand, he wants the left to embrace it, same time, 
He doesn't want to. Um, he doesn't want it to embrace nationalism all that much because it might get in the way of the liberal policies he wants. My view is this: we all have to handle that dilemma. National conservatism itself cannot be an overriding ideology with answers on all questions. Nationalism, patriotism, love of country. They should inspire people across the full spectrum of politics and also within the several varieties of conservatism. But a patriotic outlook doesn't have a single answer to all questions because it's compatible with different political loyalties below itself. And that's why I, as a free market nationalist on the British model, and there is such a thing, am happy to cooperate and disagree with those here who favor more statist economics or more communitarian social policies. We belong to big, expansive nations. We can't take small or narrow-minded views, so I look forward to a lot more fruitful disagreements.